0: Today is Wednesday, February the 7th, 2024. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and Big Tech has been collecting and aggregating your personal data. Do you know how Big Tech companies are using your personal data? And meanwhile, the National Security Agency, that's the NSA, has been purchasing Americans' internet browsing records from data brokers without first obtaining a search warrant. We have been bringing computer news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for over 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. Our only advocacies are consumerism and, of course, the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to Hank at pcradioshow.org Our website is pcradioshow.org We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the progressive radio network prn.live, O I V E streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org Tonight, we will cover the following news. Comcast is dropping its misleading Xfinity 10G network branding. Comcast is no longer the largest cable TV company. Microsoft's new OneDrive design. The floppy disk refused to die in Japan. Deep fake scammer walks off with $25 million in the first-of-its-kind artificial intelligent heist. Microsoft's new artificial intelligence can simulate anyone's voice. Comcast is dropping its misleading Xfinity 10G network branding. Advertising watchdogs found the term to be unnecessarily confusing and could lead customers to believe their service is faster than it is. Comcast can still use 10G to describe the products and services so long as it's being used accurately. Comcast has agreed to abandon its Xfinity 10G network product branding after advertising watchdogs concluded that it could cause consumers to think they will all experience significantly faster speeds than are available on 5G networks, which isn't true. The National Advertising Review Board ruled that Comcast should discontinue the term 10G both when describing the Xfinity network and within the name of its Xfinity 10G network service itself. The decision stems from challenges raised by T-Mobile and AT&T that highlighted the confusing differences in the terminology being used by cellular networks, where the G in 5G stands for generation and the 10G branding used by cable companies, which instead represents a 10-gigabit network speed. As such, Comcast marketing of its service as the Xfinity 10G network caused two main concerns. That customers would be misled to believe the service is twice as fast as 5G, which it can actually deliver up to 20 gigabits per second, and that 10 gigabits per second network speeds are achievable across every Xfinity service package. In reality, those 10 gigabit per second speeds are an on-request Xfinity Gigabit Pro service that requires a fiber-to-the-home connection and cannot be achieved over standard plans that use Comcast regular cables. With phrasing like this, in Comcast's frequently asked question for Xfinity 10G, it's not hard to see how consumers could be misled. The NARB's ruling follows similar recommendations made last October by the National Advertising Division, the ad agency, industry's self-regulatory body, which urged Comcast to discontinue its 10G claims or clarify them in a manner that is not false or misleading. Comcast now agreed to stop using the term Xfinity 10G network to describe its entire network, but maintains that it strongly disagrees with the NARB's analysis and approach. The company does, however, retain the right to use the term 10G in general on the condition it's being used accurately. Terminology around 5G network speeds has caused issues in the past. AT&T was criticized by the NARB for misleading customers with fake 5G network back in May of 2020, despite its 5G evolution network being much slower than the actual 5G. A few months later, the NAD also told Verizon to stop advertising, deceiving claims about the speed and coverage of its 5G network. Now that the cable industry is eager to keep promoting 10G, consumers will need to be more aware of what these terms actually mean to avoid being duped into buying something misleading. Comcast is no longer the largest cable TV company in the United States. For years, Comcast has been the largest cable TV company in the United States. Now, Charter Spectrum is the king, the new largest cable TV company in the country. Spectrum's jump to number one spot was achieved by not losing as many customers as Comcast. Spectrum lost more than 1,018,000 TV customers in 2023. That is about 2,800 customers canceling cable TV every single day. This includes 241,000 lost in the first quarter, 200,000 lost in the second quarter, 300,000 lost in the third quarter, and... 257,000 lost in the fourth quarter to end the year. Comcast lost 2,036,000 cable TV customers and 38,000 internet subscribers in 2023. Comcast started 2023, adding more than 32,000 new internet subscribers, but lost subscribers each of the remaining three quarters. On average, Comcast lost more than 5,500 TV customers every single day in 2023. Spectrum becoming the largest cable TV company in the United States is a good PR win, but it doesn't mean much because both companies are losing TV and Internet customers. This includes Spectrum losing Internet customers for the first time in a very long time in the fourth quarter of 2023. The question now is, can Spectrum maintain this lead or will raising prices twice in the last year and dropping channels like FXX and Freeform from Disney have a long-term negative impact on the company's TV subscribers? Microsoft's new OneDrive design starts rolling out for consumers. Consumers are getting access to the new OneDrive UI by the end of February. Microsoft is starting to roll out a new design for its OneDrive cloud storage service for consumers. The software maker first unveiled a fluent design refresh for OneDrive last year, and it will be available to all OneDrive personal users by the end of February. It's both a visual and functional upgrade designed to help you get to your files quickly and keep your content organized in multiple ways. The improved visual design reduces clutter and distractions, allowing you to focus on what's important, your content, says Microsoft's product manager. The new visual interface for OneDrive more closely matches Windows 11 and changes to Microsoft's various Office apps. While the main interface has been simplified and modernized, there's also a new people view so you can find files and documents by looking at the faces of family or friends with whom you regularly share the documents. You may be like me where I often remember who shared a spreadsheet with me, but I can never remember the exact name of the file in a long list. So this interface will be a more useful feature for me personally. Microsoft has also added new file filters to this updated OneDrive UI. So you can filter the interface by Word, Excel, PowerPoint or PDF files. The add new button now includes options for both file uploads and new document creation using Office apps. That's much better than the two separate buttons that exist in OneDrive for file uploads and the new folders documents. There are many more changes planned for OneDrive and in particular business users. Microsoft is adding offline support faster load times, and much more. The first floppy disks were 8 inches, 20 centimeters in diameter. These early disks, developed by IBM, were introduced to the market in 1971. They were read-only and held a modest 80 kilobytes of data. They were used for hardware diagnostics, of the System 370 mainframe system. Later, as technology evolved, smaller floppy disk formats emerged. In the late 1970s, the five and a quarter inch floppy disk became popular, especially on dedicated word processing systems and personal computers. By the 1980s, the final iteration was the 3.5 inch floppy diskette, which gained widespread use. It's fascinating to think that these early floppy disks paved the way for today's modern storage solutions. The floppy disk refused to die in Japan. Laws that force the continued use of floppies have finally hit the chopping block. Officials won't ask for CD media either. Floppy disks can finally make their way across the digital equivalent of the River Styx and reach the land of eternal slumber. Japan's Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry has abolished any requirement for applicants to use this ancient clicking and buzzing magnetic media when filing official documents. Until recently, there were about 1,900 official governmental application procedures that stipulated businesses must submit floppies or CD-ROMs, specifically containing supplementary data. The Japanese government indicated the floppy disk days were numbered back in August of 2022. At the time, a government minister openly mused, Where can you buy floppy disks these days? He went on to tell reporters that the rules stipulating specific media to accompany official form submissions will be changed quickly. Removing the necessity for being able to work with legacy removable storage formats like floppy disks, and CD-ROMs from Japan's bureaucracy will surely come as a relief to all concern. IBM shipped the first floppy diskette in 1973, over 50 years ago. We don't know when floppy disk mechanisms ceased production, but Sony, the last floppy media maker, stopped making diskettes over a decade ago. The Japanese government might take some time to update the hundreds of official procedures that requires specific media like floppies and CDs to be submitted, or it could push ahead with immediate changes. It isn't clear from the source. However, in 2022, it was noted that there is still a viable floppy disk business operating in the USA. This singular remaining business supports clientele, ranging from the avionics and healthcare to embroidery segments, as well as hobbyists and retrocomputing folks. Tom Persky, owner of US-based FloppyDisc.com, admitted that the end of his floppy business was in sight. In 2022, he said there were about four more years left before he thought the floppy disc business would dry up. Persky was still receiving about 1,000 discs a day in the mail for recycling at the time of writing, as well as batches of new old stock 3.5-inch discs. Persky sells 50-packs, of tested recycled disc at $20. If the 1.44 megabyte double-sided floppies are too modern for your gear, the 720 KB single-sided media is still available, of course, at a premium price. Deep Fake Scammer walks off with $25 million in first-of-its-kind AI heist. Hong Kong firm tricked by simulation of multiple real people in video chat, including voices. On Sunday, a report from the South China Morning Post revealed a significant financial loss suffered by a multinational company's Hong Kong office, amounting to $25.6 million due to a sophisticated scam involving deep fake technology. The scam featured a digitally recreated version of the company's chief financial officer, along with other employees, who appeared in a video conference call instructing an employee to transfer funds. Due to an ongoing investigation, Hong Kong police did not release details of which company was scammed, and Deepfakes utilizes AI tools to create highly convincing fake videos or audio recordings posing significant challenges for individuals and organizations to discern real from fabricated content. This incident marks the first of its kind in Hong Kong, involving a large sum and the use of deep fake technology to simulate a multi-person video conference where all participants except the victim were fabricated images of real individuals. The scammers were able to convincingly replicate the appearances and voices of targeted individuals using publicly available video and audio footage. The Hong Kong police are currently investigating the case with no arrests reported yet. The scam was initially uncovered following a phishing attempt when an employee in the finance department of the company's Hong Kong branch received what seemed to be a phishing message purportedly from the company's UK-based chief financial officer Instructing them to execute a secret transaction. Despite initial doubts, the employee was convinced enough by the presence of the CFO and others in a group video call to make 15 transfers totaling 200 Hong Kong million dollars to five different Hong Kong bank accounts. Officials realized the scam occurred about a week later, prompting a police investigation. The high tech theft underscores the growing concern over new uses of AI technology, which has been spotlighted recently due to incidents like the spread of fake explicit images of pop superstar Taylor Swift. Over the past years, scammers have been using audio deepfake technology to scam people out of money by impersonating loved ones in trouble. Acting Senior Superintendent Baron Chan Chun Ching of the Hong Kong police emphasized the novelty of the scam, noting that it was the first instance in Hong Kong where victims were deceived in a multi-person video conference setting. He pointed out the scammer's strategy of not engaging directly with the victim beyond requesting a self-introduction, which made the scam more convincing. The police have offered tips for verifying the authenticity of individuals in video calls, such as asking them to move their heads or answer questions that confirm their identity, especially when money transfer requests are involved. Additionally, the Hong Kong police plans to enhance their alert system, covering the Faster payment system to include warnings for transactions linked to known scams, expanding the coverage to include a broader range of electronic and in-person transactions by the second half of the year. Microsoft's new AI can simulate anyone's voice. Text-to-speech model can preserve speakers' emotional tone and acoustic environment. Last Thursday, Microsoft researchers announced a new text-to-speech AI model called Vow-E that can closely simulate a person's voice when given a three-second audio sample. Once it learns a specific voice, Val E can synthesize audio of that person's saying anything, and do it in a way that attempts to preserve the speaker's emotional tone. Its creators speculate that Val E can be used for high-quality text-to-speech applications, speech editing, where a recording of a person can be edited and changed from a text transcript, making them saying something they originally didn't, and audio content creation when combined with other generative AI models like GPT-3. Microsoft calls VAL-E a neuro codec language model, and it builds off a technology called N-Codec, which Meta announced in October 2022. Unlike other text-to-speech methods that typically synthesize speech by manipulating waveforms, VAL-E generates discrete audio codec codes from text and acoustic prompts. It basically analyzes how a person sounds, breaks that information into discrete components, called tokens, thanks to N-codec, and uses training data to match what it knows about how that voice would sound if it spoke other phrases outside of the 3-second sample, or as Microsoft puts it, in the VAL-E paper. To synthesize personalized speech, VAU-E generates the corresponding acoustic tokens condition on the acoustic tokens of the three-second enrolled recording prompt, which constrain the speaker and content information respectively. Finally, the generated acoustic tokens are used to synthesize the final waveform with the corresponding neural codec decoder. Microsoft trained Val e speech synthesis capabilities on an audio library assembled by Meta called LibreLite. It contains 60,000 hours of English language speech from more than 7,000 speakers, mostly pulled from LibreVox public domain audiobooks. For VAL-E to generate a good result, the voice in the three-second sample must closely match a voice in the training data. On the VAL-E sample website, Microsoft provides dozens of audio examples of the AI model in action. Among the samples, the speaker prompt is the three-second audio provided to Val e that it must imitate. The ground truth is a pre-existing recording of that same speaker saying a particular phrase for comparison purposes, sort of like the control in the experiment. The baseline is an example of synthesis provided by a conventional text-to-speech synthesis method, and the VAL-E sample is the output from the VAL-E model. While using VAL-E to generate those results, the researchers only fed the three-second speaker prompt sample and a text string, what they wanted the voice to say, into VAL-E. So compare the ground truth sample to the VAL-E for sample. In some cases, the two samples are very close. Some VAU-E results seem computer-generated, but others could potentially be mistaken for human speech, which is the goal of the model. In addition to preserving a speaker's vocal timbre and emotional tone, Val e can also imitate the acoustic environment of the sample audio. For example, if the sample came from a telephone call, the audio output will simulate the acoustic and frequency properties of a telephone call in its synthesized output. That's a fancy way of saying it would sound like a telephone call, too. And Microsoft samples in the Synthesis of Diversity section demonstrate that Val e can generate variations in voice tone by changing the random seed used in the generation process. Since Val e could synthesize speech that maintains speaker identity, it may carry potential risk in misuse of the model such as spoofing voice identification or impersonating a specific speaker. To mitigate such risk, it is possible to build a detection model to discriminate whether an audio clip was synthesized by Val e We will try to also put Microsoft AI principles into practice when further developing the models, says Microsoft. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin
1: Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to talk about computers and the workplace. Information technology is so key, and it applies to so many different areas of our lives, but it affects us like nothing else when we talk about the workplace. Sure, some of it may be mundane, and some of it may be... Just run of the mill. But I will tell you that navigating computer training, you know, acquiring it and and going through the process and then moving on after that is a digital journey. It's it's one of those areas where you have to, first off, learn how to drive through the book. Then you go behind the wheel with the learner's permit. And then you get your driver's license and you continue through life learning all different things, all different manner of operations of vehicles and how you interact with the vehicles as they evolve and as you evolve to becoming a better driver. So I equate cars very frequently with information technology because that's a touch point that so many of us have. And I will tell you that there are a variety of different options for gaining training on computers through your workplace. And there are online courses. There are uh, different setups like uh, go at your own pace courses, but there are also remote workshops and in-person workshops, and they really ensure that you get the right learning. IT itself is vast, and your training may be in something like Microsoft Excel And just making better formulas. And there are multiple layers to that. Or it may be something like learning how to operate servers. This is more of on the information technology side. But everybody gets involved with training in a number of different ways. The key thing I want to point out throughout all of these different things is making sure that you are taking on work that you are capable of. Now, everybody sits there and they go, oh, I could never do that. Well, you know, you can, but you need to make sure that if you are a beginner in Excel, that you start off with a beginner level class. If you're a beginner with information technology, you take a beginner level course. You need to make sure, of course, that any training that you go through, that you strive to go through is relevant to your job. So you think about your job role. A secretary is going to focus in on some of those Microsoft Office applications. They really shouldn't be looking at server maintenance unless they have something in their job role that says you're going to take on server maintenance. A little bit odd. It's a little bit strange. But, okay, so if you are, you know, a medical secretary, you know, know, working in the medical field, you're not going to learn brain surgery. Now, if you're a brain surgeon, you may wish to move on to specialties within dealing with different portions of the brain. So you gain those different little uh, things all the way along. We want to make sure that we're staying practical. You want to learn things like the skills and applications that really are directly related and directly contribute to your work. Of course, if you're looking to go into technology itself, information technology, and you're coming from an outside field, you may need to take a lot of different courses. I know one guy who moved from the automotive industry, and he was working on cars, and he wanted to move into the IT industry. And he did a wonderful job, and he was a sponge learning all of this different uh, sets of new bits and pieces of information. It was great. Now, one of the things that he did was that he practiced the idea, uh, more of the, the the culture of continuous learning. He had a mindset of he wanted to learn what he could to tackle the first items on his list, which was working on desktops. And then he wanted to expand from there to the basics of the network. And then he wanted to deal with the servers. And he had a a nice plan, a path that he wanted to progress through. And he wanted to stay current all the way along the way. And that was great. And there are people who who really thrive under something like that. If you do not have a plan, if you're not planning on continuously learning, then you're going to struggle. Of course, there's a variety of different types of learning. But that was that's something just for another whole day. Um, you do need to look for training that will give you hands-on experience, simulating real-world stuff, uh, and that is going to be key anywhere along the way. The last item I'm going to talk about is make sure that you are getting some level of feedback all the way along the way. So when I say feedback, that can come through the form of quizzes and testing, maybe certification. It's a matter of that environment needs to make sure that you are learning the information however you go into this you need to make sure that you are progressing along the way there are empty certification programs out there and that is unfortunate Uh, they do exist you want something that isn't just a you know a rubber stamp but actually gives you the information goes through and something that tests you on it you want a dynamic learning experience all the way. It should not be just static. Open up a book and read it, and then you're done. So there's there's a lot to this. I will tell you that I have constantly learned throughout my career. I started off as a field technician, and uh, everywhere I've gone along the way, I've sought out different things, different ways to improve upon my knowledge. And that is how you gain success. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin.
1: More and
0: more USB sticks and micro SD cards are being made with dubious components. Data recovery firm uncovers no-name, low-quality NAND chips inside many devices. Nameless NAND chips exist almost everywhere now. Data recovery firm CBL reports that memory chips in the most recent micro SD cards and USB sticks, and perhaps the most unreliable, the company says that in its business is finding more and more devices with cut-down memory chips, with manufacturer's names removed, and even USB sticks that utilize a repurposed micro SD card soldered onto the board. CBL concludes that portable flash devices. Are suffering from increasingly poor quality. When they opened defective USB sticks last year, they found an alarming number of inferior memory chips with reduced capacity and the manufacturer's logo removed from the chip. Clearly, discarded and unrecognizable micro SD cards are also soldered onto the USB stick and managed with the external one on the USB stick board instead of the micro SD's internal controller. CBL believes these low-quality flash chips were probably manufactured at trustworthy companies like SanDisk and Samsung, but failed quality control. Instead of being thrown away, they were saved and made it somehow to the broader market. These chips are not completely broken, but CBL notes they come with reduced storage capacity. CBL even provided photos of three USB sticks in its data recovery business. The manufacturer's name was covered with text on one of the flash chips, but it can be identified as SanDisk. However, the two other drives had shown no names or labels. One even used a black micro SD card soldered to a PCB, an increasingly common tactic to produce USB sticks cost-effectively and perhaps dubiously. Most low-quality USB sticks were promotional gifts, according to CBL, but some were branded products, though this should concern us. CBL doesn't elaborate on what it considers a branded product. USB sticks can come in many forms, free ones that you might get such as a promotional gift, as CBL says. There's regular sticks that come from brands you probably haven't heard of, and models that are from mainstream brands like SanDisk. If CBL claims this kind of flash is found inside, even drives from brands with name recognition, that would be a big problem. CBL also identifies QLC technology, which is 4-bit technology, as another factor that compounds the reliability problems exhibited by these repurposed chips. Every flash chip comprises cells, and each cell can store several bits. The first NAND chips could only store 1 bit per cell and were called SLC or single level cell, which meant excellent performance and reliability, but inferior data density. However, although QLC, 4 bit per cell, was developed, it really has not been accepted in the marketplace because the lifetime storage using QLC is very short. Eventually, Manufacturers began increasing bits per cell to increase the amount of storage that can be put on a single chip, but more bits meant less reliability. Today, that quad-level or QLC flash chips offer the highest bits per cell and are commonly used in cheap drives. CBL says that combining subpar flash chips with QLC memory exasperates already existing quality problems, and the company says you shouldn't rely too much on the reliability of flash memory. By the way, stick with the brand names like SanDisk and Samsung for your flash drive, and you can use these reliably for backup also and not worry about lost data. This report doesn't even touch on the plague of USB sticks that falsely claim to have several hundred gigabytes of capacity but only have perhaps as little as 16 gigabytes or even 8 gigabytes. These devices are also constructed using techniques similar to the USB sticks that CBO warns of, like sticking micro SD cards to a board. The false capacity makes them counterfeit chips looking like much larger capacity USB drives. It is now at the end of the day, and the question that always arises is, should you power off your PC nightly? The question boils down to how you personally use your computer. Switch it off or keep it on? Should you turn your computer off at night, or is it fine to just slap down the laptop screen once you're done? Like all of life's great questions, there is no simple one-size-fits-all answer but there are good things to know to inform your choice. It is estimated that just 37% of people shut down their computers every night, according to a poll of 1,000 Americans cited by Panda Security. It's often assumed that it's best practice to shut down when the day is done, as if the computer needs a good night's rest just like the rest of us. However, it's not always necessary to turn off your computer after each use. Left unattended, Most computers will go into sleep mode after a certain amount of time. Most laptops will also go to sleep mode if you close the screen, although this can be changed in your settings. This is effectively a low-powered mode that uses relatively little energy, keeping all of your files, programs, and data still gently running in the background, but left on temporary pause. This means it's quicker for you to get back to work when you hit the keyboard or you juggle the mouse. It's also good if you want to run updates, scan for viruses, or do other activities while you're not using your computer. However, this does not come with some drawbacks. It's not wise to leave your computer on sleep mode if you're connected to an unsecure network in public, as it could be more vulnerable to cyber attacks. Leaving a computer in sleep mode will also use up some electricity, something to consider, if you're keeping a close eye on bills. Speaking of electricity, you may also want to invest in a surge protector, which will protect the computer from power spikes that could damage its components. Completely turning off your computer occasionally is also worthwhile, as it clears the RAM, which will help it operate more smoothly. Or, what I do in most cases if I want to clear the RAM, I just log off and log back on. Another factor to consider is how often you will be turning it on. Switching on a computer takes a fair amount of energy, and some argue that this surge can put a strain on the system, potentially decreasing the lifespan of the computer. This is why some experts recommend that frequently used computers should only be powered on and off once per day at most, and a full shutdown should be only put into action when the computer will not be used for an extended period of time. It depends on how often you use it. If you use your computer multiple times per day, it's best to just leave it on. If you use it for a short time, say an hour or two, just once a day or even less, then turn it off. Leaving a computer on at all times is less stressful than turning it off and on several times a day. But it's a constant stress. Altogether, the question boils down to how you personally use your computer. As a general rule, Leaving your computer on for days at a time won't bring it any harm if you're regularly using a laptop, but it's worth giving it a weekly full shutdown and taking some precautions. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston
1: So Marty said, hey, I've got some security items that I wanted to cover. These are really cool items that uh, that I've come across. And Ben, what do you say? And I said, sure.
2: (laughs) Let's do it. I love security stuff. He's he's so malleable. Just (laughs) sell him a bridge. (laughs) Uh, Another one? I already have three of them. Upper, lower, and what? <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn,
1: right? Yeah, there's Brooklyn. There's uh, Williamsburg. I, I don't know. Yeah, the San
2: Francisco Bay, right? The, there
1: you go. Yeah, it, yeah, it's it's beautiful and it's gold. They say, but it looks red to me in the pictures. Go yeah. on,
2: <laughs> cataracts. <laughs> for for decades, you yeah. you you know what this is about. Film based trail cameras got put out in the woods by yeah, hunters or naturalists yeah, and others. Yeah. Uh, for hunters, they could show where game gather, what paths they travel, for naturalists, similar mm-hmm, intent, mm-hmm, yeah. but for a different outcome. Uh, today, since capable video cameras can be powered by small solar panels and add that kind of placement flexibility, yeah, yeah, Reolink, R-E-O-L-I-N-K, sent a great example of that, their TrackMix Smart Wi-Fi Battery Camera. Mm-hmm. It's a weather protected motorized unit that captures both ninety six degree wide angle and thirty eight degree telephoto views into a twin image.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, for my security applications, I opted for a slightly slower fifteen frame per second frame rate to max out the resolution of four k because how fast are going people people going to move. they're there to hurt you, right? <laughs> <laughs> It, it can auto-track people, pets, or vehicles with 355-degree motorized pan, 90 degrees tilt, and a 6X hybrid, part optical, part digital zoom. Motion triggers recording to the micro SD card you add. More on that in a second. Mine is 128 gig. It has two-way audio, two night vision modes two-way, um, uh, well, I said audio, dual-band Wi-Fi, makes it easier to set up if you've got high-band as well, and lets you trade bandwidth for range. It's rated for 14 to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. It's between $200 and $250 when you include the Link Solar Panel 2 to power it.
1: I've got a buddy from work who uh, my day job, and he does this. He's got a number of these trail cams, and uh. He just loves this. He's 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 captured all kinds of stuff, including, we'll just say, a a gentleman who is distinctly enjoying nature. Oh my! (laughs) Out, uh, just just uh, you know, just uh, felt it was warm enough to Uh, remove his clothing. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, So yeah, uh, all kinds of stuff he saw in the woods. Uh, It's helped him become a better hunter, though, and that's uh, that's that's admirable.
2: But let, let's go to those micro SD cards. Yes, now, yes. Two words, high endurance. Okay. Kingston sent nice. samples nice. of their okay. 128 gig high endurance micro SD cards. These are rated for 13 below to 185 above Fahrenheit. Now, I'm in the frosted <laughs> blizzard belt.
1: <laughs> You're not going to hit that 185. I'm pretty sure.
2: <laughs> well, I know people uh, living in sizzling hot places like Fort Worth and Phoenix. Extreme yeah. temperatures yeah. are challenging for all electronics, they and are. especially yeah. for lesser memory cards. Mm-hmm. So, add park car interiors to those outdoor environments, and people who must weather the uh, weather the weather to work outdoors. Yeah. Uh, now, these high endurance micro SD cards are perfect for security cameras, for dash cams, for body cams. Mm-hmm, Kingston mm-hmm. makes them in 32 to 256 gig capacities. 128 was a good choice for my outdoor security cameras. Yeah, yeah. Speed class A10, A1 cards yeah. uh, that they can eat 4K video for breakfast, still have room left for donuts. Mm-hmm. So, some advice. First, unless you live in some vacation paradise where it's always no sweat shirt sleeve weather, Migrate your outdoor gear to these memory cards. Second, buy some spares. If there's an event, your fastest access to the video is to swap a fresh card into the camera and bring the one with the video on it back to your computer mm-hmm. to first mm-hmm. back up and then edit to extract the clips you need. Although also third, don't fear sticker shock. A hundred and twenty-eight gig Kingston High Endurance Memory SD card is about twenty bucks on Amazon.
1: Twenty dollars. For 128 gigs? <laughs> Welcome uh, uh, to
2: the future. <laughs> I, I
1: remember my first Lexar jump drive was something like oh 32 megs, and I paid some $50 for it.
2: Don't ask me uh, about my first TRS-80. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. All right, What was your first TRS-80? It was a Model 2 with, okay. with four drives on it, four floppy drives. Okay,
1: yeah.
2: I might have had a hard drive. I think they were two and a half megabyte at the time.
1: I had a Model 3. And then, uh, and then a Model One after that. Somebody, uh, somebody was I, selling a Model One. Had, so yeah, I
2: also had a Model Three, and okay. I paid to put an amber CRT in there.
1: <laughs> oh, you know? yeah. Talk right. about some old throwbacks. Hey, let's,
2: yeah. let's stay with the home security for a minute. Yes, yes, can. by all means. Uh, we just had a furnace problem. Long story short, the repair guys strongly suggest keeping an eye on carbon dioxide level. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm, jokes on mm-hmm. them. I have three indoor air quality monitors within a few feet of the furnace and they keep an eye on CO2 and everything's fine. Mm-hmm. I only had one natural gas sensor for the first two days, mm-hmm. but then I added the new Denova, D-E-N-O-V-A, the new Denova Detect. Okay. It's more sensitive than most with an LEL, uh, and that stands for lower explosive limit, with an LEL uh, level of 10%, meaning the low. that's the lowest gas concentration presence that can result in combustion and it can detect that. Uh, There's a new UL standard that just ratcheted that up from requiring 25. It's now down uh, to 15. This does 10. It's easy to mount. Just one screw head in the wall. No dangling power cords because its battery is rated for a 10-year service life. Mm -hmm. Now, if it does sense gas, it'll tell you so first by beeping and flashing and then by speaking and starting with English. Danger. Gas leak explosion risk. Evacuate. Then call 911. Immediately followed by the same instructions in Spanish. The DeNova Detect ten year hundred percent battery powered natural gas alarm is about ninety bucks on Amazon.
1: I, I'm I'm gonna definitely have to look into this because we moved from electric over to gas for for our cooking, and I'll tell you, it's just an enjoyable experience. But well,
2: yeah, put one right over the stove, and that'll that'll tell you you're not sure. likely to have problems. I've used gas for mm, millennia. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let's deal with one more place, and that's the laundry room. Sure. And we had an accident that made it rain in my basement. A utility yeah. sink that the clothes washer dumps into wasn't emptied before the load ran. So when the spin cycle expelled that tub of wash water, the drain was plugged. The sink overflowed. The overflow hit the floor. And whatever gaps live between the laundry room floor and my basement ceiling let the rains begin.
1: Yeah, it right doesn't on
2: sound my good. Lovely yeah. bench, I'll tell you. Now, this wasn't a circumstance where a solenoid valve on a water line would make any difference, but cutting the power to the washing machine might.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Some time ago, I reviewed a Shelly natural gas monitor uh, that was the predecessor to the one we just talked about, uh, and alarm that's plugged in next to my furnace, and a Shelly temperature and humidity monitor that are mm-hmm. on my yeah. nightstand keep an eye on temperature and whether it's dry or moist. A well, shelly flood goes on the floor next to the washer or under the sink, okay. and if there's ever any water on the floor, it knows it. By the way, it also monitors temperature. Take your a year-and-a-half battery life for its CR123 battery. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> it connects over low-band Wi-Fi. It's built at an access point, makes it especially easy to work with. Among other things, it doesn't need anybody's hub or controller, though if you care, it's compatible with most of them. Shelly Plug US is a simple adapter that has a standard three-prong plug on the back and a three-prong outlet on the front. Inside, it accepts commands to turn power at its front plug on or off with a built-in access point again and nobody's hybrid control system needed. You use the Shelly app to set up the simple protection. This just turns off the washing machine power when there's water on the floor. You can also expand it uh, as much as you want, even command it through Google Home or Alexa. It is by far the best combination of simplicity and flexibility in home automation I've seen. On Amazon, Shelly Flood is about 24 bucks and Shelly Plug US runs 22 bucks each for plug buying one, or you can get three for 50 bucks.
1: Okay. and this is this is good stuff to be thinking about uh, anytime I I mean I'm I'm really getting geared up with home automation I'm doing a lot of
2: different things you've been and, on that for a while I mean you you shoveled into your house when you bought it
1: yeah uh, it, it, well when it, when you start thinking about it we've got some 45 light switches that are all converted we have probably about 15 20 light bulbs that are converted over to smart bulbs beyond the switch. And then uh, I've been doing some of those flood sensors. Uh, so yeah, it's it's quite an exciting road.
2: Your house I'll- must twinkle. Yeah.
1: <laughs> like a little star. As for now, this is Benjamin Rocco. Oh, that's Marty Winston.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer Club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut Tri-State region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting IDs. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, February the 8th at 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting, and the website is bcug.com. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, February the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., And the presentation is The Three R's in the Anatomy of a Backup Redundancy, Retention, and Recovery. I will be giving that presentation. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, February the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. The Kingspite Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the number is 347-278-7320. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, March the 1st. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, March the 8th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. For more information, their website is acgnj.org. Happy Computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.